0: Pulp MX Network production. Thanks for all the support, Pulp MX fans. The Pulp MX app is now available for both iPhone and Android-based phones. For all your moto needs, shop at btosports.com and use the current discount code Steve, S-T-E-V-E. And don't forget to click the Amazon banner on pulpmx.com when purchasing anything from Amazon. It's the Steve Mathis Show. Brought to you by RacerX. Presented by BTOsports.com. The original moto podcast featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis.
1: Welcome to the BTOsports.com RacerX podcast show. We've got a real interesting one for you here today. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the podcast. Thank you, BTOsports.com, for coming on board and helping them out. And uh, the man on the line is, uh, uh, I guarantee you, he's smarter than you. Uh, let's just put it that way. Uh, <laughs> uh, introducing, introducing Paul Feed from Paul Race Tech Suspension. Uh, Paul, thank you for doing the show.
2: Oh, thank you. Appreciate it.
1: Um, and I say that because uh, I don't know you that well. I sat next to you on a plane one time. You, you probably don't remember, but... I know from talking to a lot of people that you're a smart man. You know what's going on. You've been doing it a long time, and uh, yeah, I think uh, I think people will dig this little conversation we'll have.
2: Well, I appreciate it. Uh, like I say, smartness uh, is kind of in the eye of the beholder, but uh, <laughs> right. uh, like I said, uh, there's a lot to live up to there. So I don't know. We'll see. Anyway.
1: Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll try our best. Hey, so let's start off with uh, I guess give us a little bit on your background. When Race Tech started, what's your background? Your education. And all that, and how long? I mean, obviously, you've been in business for a long time now. But uh, I guess fill the listeners in a little bit on that.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I'm you know kind of start back. Uh, you know, I started off as an enthusiast. I think like mm-hmm. most guys that are in this industry, and you know, I swung a leg over a mini bike at uh, at ten years old, and that's at, at the point in time where they had little uh, lawnmower engines in handmade frames, you know. And and uh, and anyway, as soon as I swung a leg over a mini bike, I went, "This is cool." You know, I don't have to pedal anymore. You know, no offense, bicycle guys, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it was just one of the things I fell in love with motorcycles and I actually, it gave me direction through my life and, in uh, school and gave me a reason to study and, and, uh, you know, go to college and that kind of stuff. And actually, initially I wanted to become a, a factory engineer. And so I, I went mm-hmm. to, uh, uh, college, uh, Cal, Cal Poly, uh, Pomona, California Polytechnic University, uh, in, in Southern California here. And, uh got a degree in mechanical engineering mm-hmm. uh, with the intent of being a factory engineer. And, and the more I, I kind of got into it, and actually I was putting myself through college by uh, working as a mechanic and and I uh, started, you know, porting motors and that kind of stuff. And, and the more that I, you know, when I got closer and closer to graduation, the more I realized that I, I wanted to, you know, kind of do things on my own as opposed to going to the corporate setup. Right. And uh, actually, at that point in time, I was uh, putting two strokes and and having really good results with them. And and uh, I was I was um, uh, hired by Mark Hendricks, who was the guy that that uh, owned Saddleback Park, and he also okay. owned the Harbor Yacht, and uh, we we're going to do a little performance thing together and whatever. And things didn't pan out there, but but I actually got approached by some other people. We got into a partnership and. And doing uh, performance motors, and, and at that point in time was kind of the beginning of of uh, kind of long travel suspension revolution, kind of back in the 70s mm-hmm. and, and that kind of stuff, and and started doing suspension as well. Uh, that was a partnership. It didn't work out. But in in 84, I started Race Tech, and went off on my own, and basically doing similar things where we're doing you know, motors and suspension, and. And I did motors for a lot of years, and the problem was that I I actually ground all the cylinders myself, <laughs> yeah. And did all the development. We just have so much time in on development that I mean, it's pretty much we never made it back. And and the other thing that I realized was that I could actually make people go faster uh, with suspension a lot easier than I could with motors. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it was a kind of thing where I actually had some people porting cylinders for me for a while and and that kind of stuff, but, you know, kind of as the two-stroke thing faded out, I, I, you know, let it fade out, and, mm-hmm. uh, really was, had been focusing on suspension a lot more than that, uh, you know, really is the primary thing here anyway, and so, mm-hmm. so, uh, basically, like I say, started Race Tech in 84, and, uh, really primarily with dirt bike stuff, and, you know, got into Supercross at the, kind of beginning stages of Supercross, and that kind of stuff, but, uh, you know, off-road, anything to do with dirt, and actually, yeah. what's happened is that we've expanded off into uh, road race, and I mean, heck, we do everything now. We do UTVs yeah. and ATVs, and I mean, you you pretty much name it, uh, we do it. And, you know, the, the, the common ground was it's you know suspension, suspension. You know, pretty yeah. much traction, traction, and a bump is a bump, and really, mm-hmm. the stuff that we learned on on dirt bike stuff really applied very well to road race, and. And, frankly, all that stuff applies to, uh, you know, UTVs yep. and ATVs and, and whatnot. So,
3: right,
2: right. Anyway, that's, you know, I mean, throughout the, you know, obviously it's been, what, 27, 28 years at yeah. this point in time. So it's been a while. Uh, you know, and there's a lot that's going on throughout there. But, you know, kind of really in a nutshell, that's kind of the beginnings of, of race tech and, and where I've come from. And, and really, you know, like I said, the 20, last 27, 28 years has been <laughs> – working on suspensions, making things go better.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, you must sometimes walk in the back of the shop and be like, wow, 28 years later, <laughs> here we are. Well, you
2: know, it's funny because we do a ton of vintage stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, 1981 Yamaha, Ford, Ford right. 90s or whatever they are, you know. And, and I look at it and I just kind of chuckle and I go, this isn't vintage. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> just stuff that I used to work on, you know. <laughs> I mean, I've got all right. the spec books. We keep really, really good records. And I mean, I have all the specs from you know when we did Jeff Stanton stuff,
3: you mm-hmm. know when he
2: became national champion, and and uh, you know Jeremy McGrath stuff, and Callum yeah. Bolins and Dubox, and I mean all this stuff I lo- I can look up, you know all the records of it, and I kind of you know I tell you, you know it's funny, you know when my my when I was younger, my parents would go, you know it just it seems like a blink of an eye when you know you were just five years old, and I used to chuckle and go, "Man, no, that's that's a long time." And yeah. yeah. Then I look back and I go, "That was just a blink of an eye."
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly right. More but, things change. Uh, yeah.
4: Yeah. Um, anyway.
1: Yeah, and you've worked with a ton of guys, like you said, McGrath of the uh, Michael Lessie, uh, Jeff Stanton. I didn't even know Stanton. Uh, I know Jake Weimer used your stuff as an amateur. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, you name it, huh? I mean, uh, some people maybe some big names that people don't realize.
2: Yeah, well, you know, and it depends on how old you are. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, some of them are current guys. You know, I mean, actually, quite a few of them are current guys at mm-hmm. this point in time. But I mean, you kind of get back into the you know, do box and the Mike Byer. Mike Byer was one of uh, Mike. Mike was. I don't know if you know Mike at all, but I do. I uh, do. Yeah. You know, I mean, great guy. I mean, he was third in the nation in the one twenty five. Yeah. Uh, you know, we did a suspension and motor. You know, back in '84, he was third in the nation. You know, and yeah. and this was back when there were, you know, twelve factory guys racing the class. You know, and yeah. you know, I mean, it's like, and and you know, it's like Mike. Well, wow, he's he's really awesome at everything from knee braces to building carbon fiber, fiber parts for Yoshimura at this point in time. I mean, you know, neat knee, right. guy. But I mean, he's one of these guys. It's part of history. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, Danny Chandler. We, you know, I mean, I built the. The Suzukis that he got his factory ride on, you know, when he was doing one twenty fives. Yeah, yeah. But so, yeah, there were just a lot of guys back there that, uh, you know, Dubach and all those guys well, that uh, just really great times and really neat people the, you know, that we worked with over the years.
1: You know, I, I grew up in Canada just as a kid, just reading the magazines. And when I think of race tech, I definitely think of Dubach, um, top sure. top level top five guy for many years, running uh, running race tech stuff all the time. And and to me. Yeah. Dubach really was like, "Wow, look at race tech you know they're doing that with doug, so
2: yeah um yeah now Doug's, Doug's a great guy and and just I mean what a phenomenal you know story, and I mean he's privateer mm-hmm. of all privateers, you know, and then he goes off and you know gets a Canadian national championship yeah. way after you know kind of the what people normally consider the prime as far as their age is concerned, right uh, you know like in, you know, yeah, in Canada, I mean neat, neat stuff you know
1: um and and I guess is there one would it be Dubok, one guy that you worked with over the years that, that sticks out? I mean, would it be Doug, or was there, was there somebody else that was, you know? I mean, I, I You know, know I
2: mean, to... obviously being in business for 28 years, yeah. it, there's a lot of guys, you know, I mean, yeah. and it just depends. I mean, when, when we'd work with guys, we'd work with guys 100%, no matter who it was. Mm-hmm. And, and then the, the thing that we would do is we always sell whatever it is that we would come up with. Yep. So, in other words, uh, you know, we'd have some local guy, you know, I do tons of development with uh I think Gary Denton, there's another classic name here. Oh, you know, wow, Gary yeah, was yeah. what, eight time quad national champion, right? right we had a right. suspension on his on his ATVs, you know for most of those years and uh, you know, but also his suspension of motors and that kind of stuff when he was when he was on motorcycles.
1: You yeah, when he's top privateer, yeah, with on private nationals. Yeah.
3: Right.
2: You know, and so then we developed a whole bunch of stuff for him and then some local guy would come in and go, Hey, I want what Gary has, you mm-hmm. know, or oh, what Doug yeah. has or well and we'd sell it, whatever it was. I mean, that's actually how we did Chandler stuff. Uh. Chandler stuff, he just bought something that was the dead man, you know, <laughs> and, which is kind of funny, you know. Right. Uh, because, you know, Chandler lived up north and stuff. And so he, you know, he just, he'd heard about us and, and, uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, got a hold of us from from the reputation of those guys. But, you know, I mean, you talk about any specific guy, you know, really it depends on the time. But Doug, Doug's been a long, long time friend. And, uh, you know, certainly was around back at kind of the very beginnings of race Tech, And, mm-hmm. and, uh, I certainly, we learned a ton together and, uh, and we used to, I used to work, uh, with writers on writing technique and stuff too. In fact, I used to go to, with Doug and I would videotape his, uh, his races. And then we would discuss, mm-hmm. uh, you know, writing technique and, you know, what other guys are doing and that kind of stuff. Uh, that was actually a, uh, Kind of a big part of my life, and I think his too. You know, and obviously you'd have to ask him, but uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, it would be on old uh, eight, uh, you know, high eight video camera, you right, know, right. or not eight millimeter, you know, not film, <laughs> but uh, it was, it's not that old, right? But uh, anyway, I mean, it was just neat stuff. I still have those videos, you know, and, and uh, but we would sit there and and kind of made a science out of it, and uh, I, you know, really helped Doug go from a really good privateer to, uh, you know, his relationship with Yamaha and, and actually continuing on from, uh, from that, uh, I mean, he's worked with Yamaha as a test rider for Mm -hmm. tons of years. And, uh, you know, really became a really excellent test rider as well. So, yeah, I would say Doug is one of those right. one of the standout guys. But like I say, all of those guys are just neat guys to work with.
1: And, of course, you probably still have trouble sleeping at night due to the disqualification of Dubok at Ponca City in 87 <laughs> with your shifter, right? I guess the wow. Yamahas had a problem shifting in 87, and you came up with a shifter that sort of pivoted off of the uh, pivot bolt maybe or something. and A uh, arm uh,
2: pivot, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, it, uh,
1: that was it. You, bust, you got busted.
2: Well, you know it was funny because you know obviously they've got all these rules that 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 however many people try to cheat, right. try to cheat with these things and I mean it seriously, it wasn't even something that we considered to be cheating
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know it's like everything from the four nineties to the one twenty fives the shift lever was pivoting first of all, it was really short, and it pivoted from really low spot. so. Yep you'd almost have to hook your toe underneath the thing and and pull backwards on it. I mean, you're almost better off kicking it with your heel right you know to make an upshift <laughs> and and so I built this linkage shift lever uh you know back in the day and the thing just just shifted like butter, you know, and and uh, in fact that was an interesting race because I remember Doug literally went from that 40 guys on the line and Doug got for whatever reason got a horrible start. I mean, last place. He was it was like studying the gate and timing it, and then they they, they switch the guy that uh, uh, you know that pulls the lever, you know. And and anyway, he ends up getting a last place start, and it was like one of these five lap races that he went from last to like second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and you go, really, you went from last to second. But when he came in, of course, I said, so what the heck was up with? That? i mean, good ride. Yeah. But what the heck was up with that start? You know. And so he gets all pissed off at me, and you know, we have one of our uh, you know one of our moments, but know, ends up ends up where, uh, yeah, somebody was just looking for a reason to disqualify right. him, and, you know, I mean, the shifter was it. So, yeah, I mean, it's like we're sitting there like, really? You're yeah. going to disqualify him? You to disqualify him because his bike shifts? Right. Okay. Right. No, like. Whatever, yeah. I mean, in the big scheme of things, it, you know, right. didn't ruin his career.
1: So. Well, again, it's something that came stuck to mind as a kid, and when I thought about how I'm going to interview Paul Thien, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. You got to uh, wedge
2: that one in there. Uh, yeah, yeah, I ruined his life. <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs>
1: hey, let's, uh, let's talk about business right now. Um, there, you know, since in the 28 years, there's probably been 2,800 suspension companies come and go um, in that time. Uh, there's no secret that, you know, there's sort of a wave, and, and we're maybe – Maybe at a down point in the wave and maybe coming back up nowadays, but how is business? How is the suspension business for you, and uh, how tough has it been the last few years and, and, and all that, or has it been? You
2: know, I tell you, we have been absolutely blessed. we so lucky, and, it's, and, and I tell you, and it's in a bunch of different areas. Everything from kind of all the pieces have fallen into place. I mean, seriously, I've been in business 28 years. Mm-hmm. The last three years have been my best three years. Wow,
4: wow, cool.
2: So you know, it's just it's crazy. Now I mean, uh-huh. we we do all kinds of stuff. Yep. And I mean, we have we have a cartridge for a Hayoung, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like you go a oh, hayu what? <laughs> that's a that's a Korean knockoff of a SV six hundred and fifty Suzuki street bike.
1: Oh geez, wow. Okay. Yeah.
2: You know, and then and you sit there and go, okay, Paul, wait a second, we got dirt bike guys on the line here. You know. But, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the point is, is that. If we capture the highest-sung market, well it helps us be able to mm-hmm. you know pay the bills and mm-hmm. and continue to help out the monocross guys um, you know, and, yeah. and uh, one of the other things that's happened, I mean, uh, you know, I hired uh, Todd Davis, Todd was uh, about four or five years ago at this point in time, went off he used to work for me, went off on his own for a while and did ATV suspension uh, under the uh, the company name of p c s mm-hmm. and he came back in and he'd been working with some different guys. And one of the guys in particular was uh, was Rob Brown back in uh, the Midwest, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Chicago area. And Rob actually um, was looking to make some changes in his life and stuff. And uh, uh, actually, I interviewed him and ended up hiring him. And he 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 shut his business down and and came uh, came out to the to California to uh, to work for me. And I tell you what, he is another guy. That has just absolutely made a huge difference around here, and oh, cool. uh, with yeah. settings and working with writers and even just writers that he has had contact with in the past, uh, you know, kind of brings this whole uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, Midwest mafia kind of thing, and not nothing, <laughs> not not really mafia, excuse me, yeah, but yeah. Uh, we got you know, it. kind of, but this whole gang of Midwest guys that uh, um, you know I, I really wasn't that familiar with, and that are just outstanding guys. Uh, as racers, and you know a uh, number of them are you know cracking into the top twenty and even in the top ten uh, at this point in time and and anyway, just rob has just been mm-hmm. phenomenal as far as uh, is working with you know riders and mm-hmm. and uh, you know like i say the his skill and ability to to uh, take what they're saying and translating it into what the suspension you know what changes need to be made on the suspension is phenomenal and so right. you know it's like if I looked at I mean, certainly there are a lot of things that have fallen into place, Uh, you know, for us to be saying that we're having our best years ever, but we're having our best years ever, and, and, uh, I mean, it's just getting stronger and stronger, and, and, you know, certainly a lot of it is because of the people that I have working here. I mean, I just have a phenomenal staff here, and uh, just a bunch of neat people, um, you know, from, you know, from... uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, robin Todd uh, christie who's my uh, sales manager and you know I mean it's just neat neat people and and just good stuff so
1: all right um, interested uh, I have to ask this question or my brother will, will get very upset he he uh he's a vintage guy and uh he's got the race tech on his both his 1981 yZs um didn't okay. pop but you know he almost you, you basically built a whole new shock for the, the bike as well um okay. he didn't he didn't pop for that one but he got the all the uh the cones and everything else put in and he loves it. It's, a, it's you know, a hundred times better than the bike was. But how big of a market is that vintage? Is is it, and he's all into it, is that a good chunk of change? Are there a lot of guys out there with that now?
2: Well, you know, I mean, there's a couple of things. One is I invented a product called an emulator mm-hmm. for the old damping rod front forks. And, and that really has, you know, and I don't want to say that we own the market, but on the other hand, it, it's something that took the old damping rod forks. You know, in the evolution of times, you know, damping rod forks, they started to put little valves and stuff in there. And, right. and uh, then they went off into cartridges, and then the cartridges became more sophisticated. And then, you know, we've got twin chambers and et cetera, et cetera. So there's kind of been an evolution. But basically with a, with a damping rod fork, damping rod forks kind of had the worst of both worlds. They they were both mushy and harsh at the same time. And so it's like you kind of go, you'd like the opposite of that. You'd like it to be firm and yet plush. right? And And so a cartridge fork... Because of the style of damping or damping curve that it it creates, um, has a better shot at doing that. Now, obviously, you can you can set something up really horribly, mm-hmm. even though it has the potential to be great, mm-hmm. and it can be horrible. You know, but on the other hand, an emulator is a is a little valve that sits on top of the damping rod. We do a real minor modification of the damping rod. Literally, we enlarge the holes in the damping rod because a, a damping rod basically creates damping because you're shoving oil through holes. Yeah, through through, and that's all there is to it. You know, and and what the emulator is is a little valve that sits on top of the damping rod and creates the damping curve that we want. And so what we do is we enlarge the holes at the bottom of the damper rod, and that basically transfers control of the damping onto the valve. So in other words, the holes are big enough to where they're not making any significant amount of damping. Yeah, it and
1: just so, forces the oil into the valve. To,
2: to, yeah, yeah. And so it just, now it just transfers oil into the valve. Now, the valve itself is a little bit more sophisticated. Now, it's not a difficult product. It's really a simple product, but it it gives us control of the damping curve and why I called it an emulator because it, it actually officially is a gold valve cartridge emulator mm-hmm. because it emulates or duplicates the damping curve on compression of a well-tuned cartridge fork. And so with, with the vintage guys, I mean, obviously you've got different vintage classes, but yeah. most of those guys from, you know, kind of mid eighties on back are, are damping rods. And yep. we have really neat product for that. Now, with that too, one of the things that's gone on is certainly as we go through time we learn things. You know? Right. <laughs> I mean, thank goodness, you know. Yeah, right,
4: right. <laughs> and
2: and so for example, I invented gold valves back in the early nineties and and if frankly those old vintage shocks, they had a really short section on the shaft to hold the valving. And you know, without getting into a lot of technical detail, we couldn't for years put a modern valving piston onto one of those old, uh, into one of those old shops. Mm -hmm. And so we could do stuff on the outside and, you know, spring kits and, you know, this and that, whatever. But, you know, we just had to basically valve within the confines of the original valving system. And in fact, this is something you might mention to your brother, have him call us because I want to make sure we've got the latest stuff because as of a few years ago, I was able to figure out how to make a compact Piston design and valving stacks, so that we can literally take today's valving stacks and designs and piston designs oh, yeah, yeah. and put them on oh, wow. bikes that are you know 30 plus right. years old. Right. And so you know with those things, and you know, and the other thing is is that I'm familiar with them, and I've already created solutions for you know when a guy blows the seal you know, you go, well, what do you do? You don't go down to your local Yamaha dealer. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, so I've actually either had seals molded or made seal heads or, you know, whatever. And so I've got solutions for a lot of that kind of stuff. And so your, your first question was kind of how big is that market? Well, it's, it's you know, as a piece of the entire pie, mm-hmm. you know, why we're doing as well as we are is we've got a whole bunch of pieces of the pie of going. The
4: pie. Right, right,
2: right. You know, and so as a piece of it, you know, it's really great. And like i said we've got a lot of really neat solutions for for people that really there's not there are not that many other sources for this kind of stuff and especially i mean we spend a lot of effort and time developing things in fact for that bike if he's got an 8081 yz we actually have a brand new dualite spring kit for the shock mm-hmm. that we had actually had some some uh, issues with uh, Uh, you know, the spring collar rubbing on the body and that kind of stuff, which kind of a lot of people just surrendered to. And we actually redesigned all that stuff so it it basically rubs on a collar that we have at this point in time. And, and, uh, you know, anyway, just neat, neat stuff. And, you know, like I say, have him call me. And uh, we'll make sure he's got the latest stuff, both valving wise and spring wise uh, too. You, but
4: you don't know how but, what, what kind
2: of
1: can of worms you just open with that call me thing. <laughs> well,
2: yeah. Well, no, <laughs> not this number. No, <laughs> not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, race tech.
1: Oh, <laughs> race tech. Exactly.
2: Nine five one. Yeah. Anyway.
1: Uh, Racetech dot I didn't actually say that. Racetech dot com. Everybody, you can check it out. And and I was I was checking the website out the other day. And yeah, seals, oil, springs, valving, uh, anything anything that you need in suspension wise you guys have it um it's it's crazy
2: pretty, yeah yeah pretty much and if we can't if we don't have it there a lot of times we have a uh, you know a right. connection to it yep and i mean it's like i tell you we get some stuff in here that you go really you know i've never <laughs> seen something like this before and we'll manufacture a seal head for an old Coney shock you yep. know if I could go really a Coney shock yeah well that was a yep. you know, long travel wheel smith you know poppy bodies on Uh, their, you know, 15-inch travel laid down, you know, like, okay, what do you do? (laughs) Well, we'll come up with a solution. So, Uh, anyway.
1: Safe to say that maybe out of all the things you've done, that gold valve system, I mean, that really put you on the map, didn't it? Those, I had had one, and my buddies had them. Um, Yeah, you must have sold so many of those things.
2: You know, I tell you, people have no idea how many sets of suspension we do because, we sell so many to suspension tuners and suspension tuners install them and then put their own stickers on.
1: Yeah, for sure. And,
2: you know, I mean, obviously the goal basically what happened is back in the early nineties, I was really, really struggling because basically the more kind of notoriety that we got, the more people would take our stuff apart and copy it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you go, "Ah." right. You know, I mean, it's really annoying. And I mean, I understand the temptation of it, but, um, i also think that you know what goes around comes around which is kind of a interesting concept but i've certainly seen it uh, over yeah. the years as well but but basically what happened was i got into a situation where i was i was uh, modifying stock pistons and getting better results with them so in mm-hmm. other words there was a basically a valving would make the suspension better but it could only get it a certain amount better and then i was modifying the pistons and it got even better still but mm-hmm. Then, again, I I ran up against the wall to where I couldn't make any better. And and the idea behind a gold valve literally is get the piston design out of the way, make the ports big enough so that they're not creating that orifice-style damping. Just like we were talking about the emulators on the front forks where you're just shoving oil through holes. Well, if you let those holes create the significant portion of the damping, then what happens is you're literally stuck on that style of damping. And so what will happen is when you hit a square-edge bump, the thing kicks. No matter what, mm-hmm. and so you know, it's like so. Basically, what we're doing is we're making the ports bigger, and allowing the control of the damping to be controlled by the valving stack itself. Now, the valving stack then becomes uh, you know the critical the, yeah. the critical component. And you know, people all the time. You know, you got people that have their own agenda. You know, suspension tuners, and they'll they'll say things like, "Oh, you know, the ports are way too big," and you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, whatever, dude. You know, and, yep. and or they'll say, Oh, that's ancient technology. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is is that we've probably had over the course of well, since the early nineties, uh, probably hundred and forty or fifty different gold valve designs. Yep. Yes,
4: you know, so different iterations updated, right. and different
2: size and configurations and that kind of stuff. And the, if you laid a current one down next to the old ones, you know, it would be it's a far cry from the old one. So it's constantly developing the technology. Uh, and we've made some things that we think are significant improvements, but I could still take the original gold belt piston and put it in your bike and make it work. Right, and, right. you know, the, and the point is, is, you know, too, it's not a matter of, of, um, you know, gee, it's going to blow through the valve No, no, no. What happens is now I'm controlling with the valving stack and I could make that valving stack literally by how I valve it. I could make it work just as bad as anything. <laughs> I mean, I could make it work horribly. Yeah, I could make it harsh and kick and this and that, whatever, but it also gives me the opportunity to get more of that same thing that we have with the emulator, plusher and firmer at the same time. And we actually went out with a with a magazine and did uh, shock shot clock, you know, data acquisition tests with it and got exactly the results that we you know that we had predicted that we can actually make it plusher and firmer at the same time and track better and etc, etc. Um but but anyway, yeah, back a little bit to the gold valve. Um the gold valve uh Basically, once I had that piston design, the question really became, do I want people to have to send it in to me and then me do the work, you know, the labor portion of it, or do I want to basically have other suspension tuners and individuals that would like to do this stuff, do I want to basically allow them to get involved in it and, uh, you know, do their own suspension? And so, you know, I went back and forth on it quite a bit, but what I decided was, um, to put it into the form of a kit. And understand, too, that once I decided to put it into a kit, probably the biggest price that we've paid since then is when people install the product wrong. <laughs> and we get stuff. In fact, I, I've started to create a little gallery, you know, where people, they'll just, oh, I hate my suspension, you know, and, you know, they'll send it in, and, you know, we'll go, well, who did it? And we will go, well, right. you know, this tuner down the street, or I couldn't understand it, so I sent it to this guy or, <laughs> you know, whatever. And, and we get it, to, and the pistons in upside down, or right. you know, the valving stacks in upside down, or, you know, or they just took all the shims in the kit <laughs> and put them all on the shaft. You know, whoa, 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 you know. Yeah. What we have in that kit is the ability to do anything from a 100-pound, uh, you know, novice yeah. beginner girl to you know, Supercross pro that's you know 250 pounds, and you know you don't use all the shims in the in the in the, in the, in the pack, you yeah, know. And yeah. and uh, anyway, but but uh, like I said, some people will kind of get a bad taste in their mouth for our company because somebody's installed the product wrong. And I mean, obviously, we stand behind everything. But yeah, uh, you know, I mean, it's like, hey, send it in, let's figure it out. And you know, if, it, if it's just if everything's installed correctly and and, uh, you know, you just don't like it, then, you know, hey, we'll work with you until you do like it. Right. And uh, on the other hand, if something's, you know, if, the, if a piston got installed upside down, eh, you're going to have to pay a little bit. But anyway, the, the point is is that really uh, my business um, is now all about helping other people mm-hmm. do suspension installations and really understand this stuff as well. And like I say, I put it into the form of a kit, and now we have everything from springs to you know seals, the bushings, the you know shims, the, mm-hmm. you know you can you know I mean basically what I'm about is helping other people be able to do this.
1: Well, yeah, and that's kind of brings me to my next thing. Besides, I mean, on top of the the gold valve, you know, really, really working for you well and selling a lot, you do these suspension seminars. You have race tech outlets where you basically, uh, you know, parts across the country, uh, people sign up, they become dealers for you, and you pass on knowledge to them. And these right. seminar, you're actually you're costing yourself money, Paul. I I don't know if you're. I'm trying to help I, you here.
2: <laughs> no, I I believe me. I've had a number of people uh, give me that argument. They go, "You're an idiot. You're teaching all the secrets." Right, right. Yeah, right. You, you might be getting to it too, but I, I you probably know that we also I also wrote a book. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's the, the suspension seminars are kind of one of those things where. Back in 1994, a friend of mine that came, came to me and he, a friend of mine he came to me and he says, uh, "Have you thought about teaching all the sequels?" Right. I go, "That's a the idea." Let me <laughs> let me ask. You know, right. everybody thought it was a stupid idea, so I decided to do it. Yeah. But but uh, <laughs> basically, the idea was that you know, people once I had the gold valve kit, people knew what to do. Right. But they didn't know why they were why doing
4: they, it. Yeah. Why? Yeah.
2: And um, you know, and, and frankly suspension is one of those things where there's so much mystery, there's so much, you know, kind of mystic mumbo jumbo, black magic, and you know, and the thing is is that what makes sense doesn't necessarily sense in other words, what makes sense isn't always true. Right, right. And but yet people will literally build their reputation off of something that isn't true. And and here's also the truth. Every single suspension center that's out there whether they agree with what, how I believe in valving or not, uh, you know, styles of valving, They have happy customers. There are people out there, it, it, and they can think exactly the opposite about suspension, and they have happy customers. Now, yeah. well, you know, well, what would I say about that? Well, number one, the best you've ridden is the best you know. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite sayings. Yeah, I made it up a long time ago. And, and basically what it is, I, I don't want to badmouth other people's product because every suspension company out there that's doing suspension, has happy customers, mm-hmm. and what I would invite people to do is try our stuff. You know, it's kind of like you know, it's like, hey, give it a go. If you like it, if it's better, awesome. If if there's something that you like about something else, you know, maybe maybe you like five things better about our stuff, yep. and then there's one thing that you like about. It, let us know what it is, and we'll do our darnest to give you everything.
3: Right, right.
2: And, and so anyway, but yeah, back to the seminars. Uh, I mean, I teach them all over the world, and actually, Race Tech centers are all over the world. And uh, we've literally—I think I'm on my about 150th seminar at this point in time. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's a it's a pretty big list at this point, you know. And we've had some really really neat guys. Uh, actually, yes, a lot of my competition has come through my seminars.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe you need to reevaluate your business plan. No, I'm, yeah, kid- well, I'm kidding. Yeah, but... well, yeah. Well, you know, it, no, cool.
2: the truth is, the more I put out, the more it comes back.
1: Yeah, well, that's a good idea. Do you ever find um, you know I was a, I was a, I was a factory mechanic for a number of years and we our suspension guys we would run something on the dyno and it would be the the direction we want to go and the, the an ideal curve and then take it to the track and the rider hates it I mean that's just kind of what you were saying right I mean it's it's mm-hmm. it's such an imperfect science suspension
2: well suspension yeah that what makes it really challenging is you got riders personal preference mm-hmm. and, and frankly some of that personal preference. Has to do with what they're used to,
3: right? And
2: I, I mean, I'll give a—I don't want to pick on anybody in particular, but Ricky Carmichael is one of my favorite guys that I talk about in the seminars. And you know, Ricky—I mean, obviously, you cannot argue with that guy's results, or you know, I mean, yeah. his frankly his legacy. I mean, just nominal, phenomenal rider. You know, I mean, good, good argument for greatest of all time, right? And I remember watching him on the Hondas, and he would be in the middle of a double jump. I mean, he'd be at the apex of the jump in the air and his suspension would still be halfway compressed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because his rebound damping was so slow. I mean, you can time it with a sundial. (laughs) You know, and so, well, how did it it end up, you know, to where it was that slow? And and what I'm just going to suggest is that slow had some major, major prices, uh, not only in compliance but in traction uh, and bike tracking straight, et cetera, et cetera. And so it'll work okay in sand. Yeah. But it'll work horribly in hardback. The problem is, is that when when a rider gets used to it, then they're looking for a certain feel in the suspension, even though it may not benefit him. Mm-hmm. And in fact, until he actually made changes finally in his last season, uh, and, you know, it was kind of the time where you know, was, you know, James Stewart when, and he were really, really going at it. And uh James seemed to have a little bit of an edge on him, you know, James might crash or you know, whatever, but I mean right. it was like Ricky was you could tell he was he was he yeah. was kinda of doubting himself, you know, I mean at my viewpoint, you know. Right. Anyway, right. um and they actually sped his suspension up between Anaheim one and three and all of a sudden he was as fast or faster yeah. than uh than James Stewart, you know, again and, and uh, basically won the race. You know, hands down, where it wasn't, you know, to where just you know James mm-hmm. got a lousy start or something. You know, it was yeah. it was just a you know straight up win, and uh, and all of a sudden, it, and it, literally his suspension, you know, rebound damping had been set up faster. And so you know, obviously, long story to make a point. The point is that people get used to stuff that really doesn't benefit them, <laughs> yep. and they'll argue to the death, <laughs> you yep. know, that that's the feel that they want, right. You well, know, and uh, so yeah, I mean, you'll have a, a thing where I mean, we may have uh, you know a hundred, you know, two fifty intermediate uh, motocrossers, or you know, mm-hmm. you know, four fifty pros, or whatever. And ninety nine of them will go, "This is awesome." You know, the hundredth guy will go, "Oh, this is way too soft," and the hundred first will go, "This is way too stiff." Yeah. And the guy that usually is the one to complain about it only is the guy that thinks it's way too soft. Right, right. (laughs) Because the guy that thinks it's way too stiff usually is embarrassed because he thinks he's just not that fast. He needs to go
1: harder, right? He needs to ride harder.
2: He needs to ride harder. And the truth is that has nothing to do with it. It really is. That's his personal preference. And I've actually seen riders that are incredibly fast that we set up with very, very plush suspension. Mm -hmm. And they never have a bottoming problem because of the way that they ride that bike and they really work the suspension you know, on the bike so that they don't have a bottoming problem, and they're much more suited to a much plusher setup. So, yeah, I mean, the point that you made is a really good and valid point, and, yeah, you might have something that you think is awesome, and oops, right. <laughs> that guy doesn't like it.
1: We uh, uh, Well, I was at Yamaha, I was working for Ferry, but Reed was was beating Carmichael in 03, and, and Ricky couldn't go through the whoops to save his life. And right. we were laughing at him on video because his setup was so low, so slow, that he would end up packing, and, you know, by the end of the whoops, he's barely hanging on. But, of course, yeah. his right hand no, is pinned, you know? And, and yep. we would be like, what is this guy doing? Doesn't he see that his suspension is shit?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and obviously I want to be respectful. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it would. Uh, right. Scott Bennett was his suspension tuner for all those years and actually was part of the deal of, of him going from Honda to Suzuki. And Scott used to work here for a number of years. Uh, before he worked for Shoah and those guys and, and so Scott's a really good friend, neat mm-hmm. guy. And yeah. uh, and I would talk to Scott and I go, Scott, why <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> why is he running it with it that much rebound? And he goes he goes, Man, I would try to I would try to speed it up and he would always you know, Ricky would always catch me and he would go, Uh 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 Scott, low and slow. Uh, low and slow. slow. I mean that was his that yeah. was his motto. But you know, again, you can figure, I mean in, in the, the conversation that I just had with you the tip-off was where would Ricky grow up?
1: Yeah, slow sand. Yeah, right. Well, yeah.
2: In, in sand, you know, he right. grew up in Florida, and you know, and it's not there. There isn't any hard pack there, but it's you know, that's a lot of sand, and it's a lot of stuff where you can get away with
3: mm-hmm.
2: a setup, and in fact, you can even feel a little bit more in control with a little bit slower rebound damping. Mm-hmm. And so, and the other thing is, is that you know, people notoriously think is that uh, when a bike kicks, that it's because the rebound is too fast. And which the truth is is that more than more than likely it's the opposite of that, or it doesn't even have anything to do with rebound damping. Right. But basically, people keep screwing in rebound damping and make it slower and slower and slower because, after all, why would they want to screw it back out and make yeah. the bike kick? Right. Yeah, you know. So anyway, yeah, a number of interesting things on that, but uh, yeah, no, I, that's funny that you would have had that same observation. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, we would love it when the wolves were big. It was like, oh, you know, right. Chad's going to kill it tonight or whatever. So um, yep. there you go. Uh, dampening rods to cartridge forks to twin chamber forks rights to upside down forks sometimes back Mm -hmm. back again now we have air forks what's and i want to get to air forks separately but what's the biggest advancement in your in your eyes have we had what's the biggest jump uh in suspension and uh evolution do you think over these years
2: you know, out of all those things, you know, from right side up damping rod forks to, you know, upside down twin chamber, mm-hmm. you know, 48, 50 millimeter, you know, whatever, I would right. say the biggest advancement has been the leap from a damping rod to a cartridge.
1: Cartridge, yeah. So, like, 86,
2: yeah, 86 to a cartridge. yeah. Right. You know, it's like, it's funny, we talk about these different things, but, you know, twin chamber stuff is has got some benefits to it, Mm -hmm. but really the reason why you've separated that in there and you've got a floating piston is that's an attempt to decrease cavitation. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that if you valve a cartridge fork for, you know, taking cavitation to mine, if you never have a cavitation problem, then the twin chamber really doesn't have a major advantage over an open chamber. Mm -hmm. And which, you know, like I say, well, I, I say stuff that basically is what I... You know, my observation of right. the truth is people will freak out quite often and go, oh, no, the twin chamber is the best thing since sliced bread. And it's like, right, okay, right. all right, fine. You know, but basically what happens is you've got some more ceiling surfaces, so you add friction into it and mm-hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the point is, is that there are, there are certain places where a twin chamber doesn't really help you. Right. And, and uh, But when we go from a damping rod to a cartridge, that allowed us to create that damping curve that was literally able to be more firm and more plush at the same time. Mm-hmm. And while, while when uh, you know when we just had a damping rod, it was very difficult to do that. Obviously, once I invented uh, emulators, uh, you know we were able to get some of that. Yeah. In fact, I tell you, it's funny because I, I did the factory Suzuki off road team, and we built complete cartridges and also had emulators. And and so the guys practice bikes, we'd do uh, emulators, and the the race bikes, we'd have cartridges. And the guys would come back, and he'd go. I, I like them both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like it, you know, it's like one's a you know a hundred and sixty dollar modification, the other one's a you know nine hundred dollar yeah. modification or something, you know. And and uh, anyway, but it, it's the kind of thing where where um, you know you know even you know as I'm looking at these other things we were talking about, right side up to upside down. Upside down has improved the rigidity of the front end, mm-hmm. but. I tell you what, you can take... There there are also some downsides to the the upside-down design, and in fact, uh, you know, we talk about this in the seminars. It's actually where the the inner bushing actually goes through kind of the bend that's in the outer tube that that happens just below the triple clamp, and it kind of has to get through a kink. And um, it actually makes upside-down forks harsher than right-side-up forks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like I, I get people that... You know, I had a guy that came to me in, in in the seminars, and he he went to one of the early on seminars, and I've been saying basically that a uh, right set up set of forks is plusher than an upside down set of yeah. forks, and everything else being equal. And uh, he sat through the seminar, and he went, "This guy's an idiot," <laughs> you know. And he goes, "I just paid money to hear this guy talk," you know.
3: Right. right and right.
2: Um, and uh, but anyway, he comes back about five years later, and Suzuki had had gone to those large diameter, forty nine millimeter right set up forks. Yeah. Uh, on their RM250s and, and such, and, and basically he had ridden the bike, and he goes, oh, my God. And he comes back to me some four or five years later, and he uh-huh. goes, you know, I took your seminar about 10 years ago. He <laughs> goes, I thought you were the biggest idiot on the planet. He goes, then I rode those forks, the right set-up forks that, you know, we actually set them up, and we compared them back-to-back, back. and he goes, I could not believe how much plusher they were. Yeah. And, you know, with everything else being equal. Mm-hmm. And, I, and he goes, he goes, all, he goes, all of a sudden, I had respect. For you, and I didn't have respect for the last five years before yeah. that. Stuff. And, you know, it's just kind of funny. Um, uh, but, you know, and even as I say that, you know, there'll be people that are listening to this going, that guy's an idiot. But like I say, it, prove me right, prove me wrong, but what you need to do is to test it out.
4: Yeah.
2: And, so, uh, you know, the big problem with the right side ups is that, uh, I mean, you can get rock dings on the lower sliders, but the overhang underneath the axle was the biggest thing. In fact, we right. set a, a set of suspension up for Rodney Smith, who was on that uh, you know factory Suzuki team, right. you know, multinational uh, you know, champion. And, and uh, we set some right set up forks up when he, the bikes were coming. You know This was back in 89, 90. Mm-hmm. And uh, we put uh, uh, right set up forks on there. And uh, he went and rode and tested them. He went, man, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he went. He's all excited to go to the race. He goes to the race, comes back from the race. He goes, I can't run these things. And I go, Well, what's the deal? It, you know, aren't they working well? And He goes, No, it works awesome. Mm-hmm. He says the problem is, he says I'm the only one that rides with those uh, uh, the right set up forks, and they have that you know about two or three inch over under overhang yeah. or you know underhang or whatever below the axle. Yep. and He says if you look at a mud groove. You see the groove cut out for the tire, but you also see the groove cut out for the fork tubes.
1: Good point. Right. He's a dragon. And he said yeah. that
2: he would get into these grooves that these other guys would be going through, and they didn't have this kind of overhang, you know, past the axle. Mm-hmm. And he would have this overhang, and he would park the bike. <laughs> you know, through these deep breath, and it would just stop him. and He couldn't even get out through the turret, you know. And yeah, he goes, yeah. He goes, I can't. He goes, they work better, but I can't run these things because... I can't get through these mud turns, yeah, yeah. You know, or these deep ruts, right?
3: Because
2: you know, the fork legs hang up, you know. And so anyway, yeah. uh, you know, at this point in time, we got upside down forks, and and there you go. But like I say, in my opinion, you know, you talk about the air forks too. Air forks, uh, you know, certainly the downside on that is uh, is two things. One is uh, is temperature. You gotta monitor that all the time. Yeah. Uh, you go up in altitude or down in altitude, you have to reset your forks. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, obviously, if you get a, a force seal that's blown, you know, you've got no force spring. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and and certainly the upside is they're considerably lighter. You can tune in with oil volumes and, and top-out springs and that kind of stuff. You can tune in uh, spring rates, you know, curves that are really excellent. You know, there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong as far as the, you know, kind of the mechanical spring or the, you know, the air spring portion of it. Uh, it's just that when we, when we... Uh, um, uh, when we go ahead and, and use the air fork, you know, there's a couple of downsides to it. Right, you know, right. And I mean, I, I certainly uh, uh, think it's one of the neat things that's going on. And one of the things they've done too is that they've then made the cartridges larger in diameter and made all the valve. Larger in diameter. Yeah. Benefits of larger diameter valving is you can be more precise with it. Yep. Now, the question is, do you need to be more precise? Eh, I don't know. Right. You know, well, but uh, even actually one of the things I look at is, you know, the, the Kawasaki's uh, that uh, have the cartridge in one side and the spring in the other. Right. That one actually has a major advantage in cost of manufacture.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And actually has some advantage in that it has less sealing surfaces. You know, or, you know, so less uh, sources of friction. And so I actually like the the single sided cartridge better than I do probably anything else that's out there right now. Uh, and you know there are guys that sit there and go, oh yeah, well you know you gotta you gotta uh, put a cartridge in the other side or else it won't be balanced, and you know all this other you know stuff. <laughs> right. Their opinion. And I tell you what, we've done so much testing and and we set stuff up and have people do blind tests, and we just have riders that are absolutely overjoyed with those yeah. those forks. And, you know, if they come in thinking, oh, well, it's got a cartridge in one side, then what? It's going to turn left better than right?
4: No, oh, yeah. You know,
2: yeah, but, yeah. you know, I mean, that would require that the front axle was bending as you hit bumps. <laughs> you know, it's <type. laughs> like, yeah, no, yeah. It ain't happening. And, frankly, that, you know, uh, Kajiva, it's funny, you know, WPR I, uh, you know, back in the, 70s uh-huh. did uh, damping rod on one side spring in the other side you know and, and I think there have been companies that have done that much earlier than that as well, but I mean that's stuff that we do all the time we we mismatch springs between the left and the right to get a yeah. spring right in between
3: yeah yeah you know, i mean
2: it, it's a common practice and it's like people just you know it's like excuse me folks but the front axle would have to bend like a noodle in order for that to be a problem.
1: Um, well, know? and then, and, you know, even air forks were around in the 70s, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, they've been Well, they've yeah, been and actually,
2: that one, I I remember converting my <laughs> CZ250 to mm-hmm. yeah.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah. air. They yeah, took the springs out, those pesky springs, took those springs out and went out and raced the you know, Great Bear Grand Prix, which is like a three-hour race. It was just a blast. And this was a muddy race, and I knew I was winning this thing. And they're like, Two or three hundred guys in my class, and I knew I was winning it. You uh-huh. know? At least that's how the story goes at this point. <laughs> but uh, anyway, i was mean, race racing two with the intermediate, right? And all of a sudden, I realized that when I shut off the throttle, the front forks are just bottoming all the way to the bottom, you know, using up all, geez, six inches of travel. Yeah, yeah. And, what, yeah. and then, and then, uh, then i get back on the gas, and then the forks would extend. What, what had happened is I blew my fork seals. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I know what it's like to actually ride on a bike without fork seals. And uh, I actually ended up finishing that race, and I actually got tenth. So I may have been winning that race. I don't know. It oh, yeah. was about halfway through, but uh, anyway, yeah, that's uh, some some fun stuff. And, and uh, yeah, again, again, it's been around for a long time. Uh, and uh, you know, I mean, heck, if you look at uh, you know, say fox and that kind of stuff, the the uh, the uh, um, you know, fox has been used in you know that kind of stuff on ATVs and mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff, and in bicycles. Uh, you know, air has been used uh, commonly uh, for a long time now. Obviously, it's the lightest thing. That's what really was the attraction, yeah. I think, bicycles. And, and obviously, it's the least expensive of anything. But, you know, again, you're adding some friction, and you are also got something that's volatile temperature-wise. I guess the hot you know? ticket
1: so, would be to run nitrogen if you're a local guy. I mean, uh, that helped help to well, ease the temperature?
2: yeah, that's actually, you know, the air that we breathe is 79% nitrogen. So really, the, de- the deal, you know, you're not really going to get that much better Spring characteristic really what you're doing is getting rid of some of the water vapor mm-hmm. uh, that has some kind of a you know kind of a little bit of a progressive nature to it, or you know when it heats up it mm-hmm. you know, kind of messes with you a little bit but you know and nitrogen wouldn't be a bad thing, but it, it you know most people will never feel any difference between running nitrogen and running air right. uh, in the front forks but yeah i mean it's it's kind of one of those things it'll it' it's, it'll be interesting to see how that pans out, but you know I mean obviously easy to tune you can change the spring right with a yeah. You know, raising the <laughs> oil level and, and uh, you know, adding a few PSI here and there, subtracting, you know. So, I mean, certainly got some tuning advantages to it.
4: Yep.
1: It's that time again. Time for a commercial. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the BTOsports.com RacerX podcast show. Listen to these commercials from BTOsports.com. Use the code Steve and JT Racing. Thank you, JT Racing, for coming on board. Listen to these commercials, support the sponsors, and, yeah, then we'll get back to the show.
2: Thanks for listening to the BTOsports.com podcast show. Please don't forget that BTO is the world leader in aftermarket motocross parts for the bike or body. You'll find deals like a Shoei VFXW helmet for $309.99, 45% off, or Smith Piston goggles for $32.99, 65% off. Your order can be shipped anywhere in the USA for free, or if you're not in the USA, we ship worldwide. Check it out at BTOsports.com.
0: JT Racing USA is back to reestablish its deep roots in the motocross industry with an all-new, innovative line of racewear and casual wear. While bringing many of JT's strongest design elements from its golden years back to life, the racewear is constructed with the highest grade material on the market and has a technological fit, feel, and function that is sure to raise the bar in how motocross gear is being built. JT has relaunched itself back into motocross with the Pro Tour jersey, classic pants, lifeline, and flex Field gloves in eight colorways with an assortment of men's and women's casual wear to add to its collection. By redefining the meaning of airflow, JT has incorporated its airline system technology into this collection and have launched their all-new ALS 2 helmet in seven colorways to complete the rebirth of the brand. The wait is over
1: how do you feel about air forks and 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 they're out there for the public and you know i mean do we need them are you are you you're an innovative guy so i imagine maybe you're like this is super cool but in the grand scheme of things is this a little too big of a jump and i've asked ross maeda this question i've done these with ross and rob hendrickson and i've asked them the same question like are we going too far for the average guy cuz as you know the average guy you know barely checks his SAG.
2: Well, I tell you what, if the average guy isn't checking his air pressure in his front force <laughs> right. every single time he rides, he's uh, he's in for a, a non-treat.
4: Yeah, yeah.
2: So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's something that, well, every single time you ride, you will have to maintain it. As suspension heats up or as the day heats up, you'll have to maintain it. Um, you know, certainly it's something where, you know, springs are a couple of pounds, you know, and, you know, it's it, it actually has decreased the weight a little bit, mm-hmm. Um you know, and it's kind of, I think that they were really trying to kind of give the, the buying public, uh, you know, the best that they could. And, you mm-hmm. know, certainly, yeah, there's some risk in, in, uh, in that. There's upsides and downsides. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll have to see how that pans out, huh?
1: Yeah, it'd be interesting. So where where is the next suspension advancement coming, do you think? What, 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 what do you see happening that would be, like, you know, very advantageous to the local guys or the race teams or whatever?
2: Well, you know, I mean, there are are a lot of things that are constantly being worked on. Um, For example, we just reformulated our suspension fluid. We already have the most expensive suspension fluid on the planet uh, that I'm aware of. Um, And, uh, you know, we reformulated our oils, you know, about a a year, year and a half ago. And actually, Mm -hmm. Rob uh, Brown, who I mentioned before, um, had done a lot of the development on this. And we actually came up with a, a surface finish that we could apply to any fork tube that really helped the fork be considerably slipperier. Yep. It's funny because as I as I'm putting it out to different people in seminars and to race centers and this and that, whatever I, I have funny, I, I had a guy come to me and he goes he goes, Yeah, man, I just learned about this trick thing that this such and such a company has for decreasing friction, and, and I'm going tell me about it. You know, it yeah, yeah. turns out it was exactly what, you know, Rob came up with a year and a half ago. And, you know, it's like, you know, obviously people uh, have a tendency to kind of uh, take ownership of, of yeah. things that they had nothing to do with. But anyway, one of the things that I would say is there's a constant development for decrease in friction, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, both in things that we can do as treatments or in oil. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously there's a reason why our oil is as expensive as it is, uh, you know, it's not just because we're you know greedy. It's because we're it, we're spending a lot of money to to build that oil. And in fact, the truth is, my my profit isn't that great on it. Uh, it's just very expensive oil to manufacture. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it's not for everybody because not everybody is you know kind of looking for the best available. Some people you know just need their suspension to go up and down. Right, right. You know. And um, but anyway, um, um, you know, certainly as far as uh, as far as springs are concerned and damping mm-hmm. and components, there's a trade-off between strength and weight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so as metallurgy improves, you get a little bit lighter springs for the weight. You know, but I mean, those things are teeny little incremental kind of things. Yeah. The bigger things that are kind of coming down the pipe will be, at some point in time, you'll see programmable suspension. And so you'll see, just like you map a, a motor, you'll be yep. able to map suspension. Now, there will be a lot to that, and there's a lot, again, you know, similar kind of thing. Inherently, there's a risk to it, too, because if you've got a failure in yeah. the electronics, then all of a sudden you've got suspension that's uncontrolled. Mm-hmm. And so they'll have to be fail-safes and this and that, whatever. But I'm talking, you know, even, even at that point, we're talking years down the road to where, and I mean, frankly, there's some stuff in road racing that's just being dabbled in right now, Uh, as far as this kind of a thing, but it's Mm -hmm. really, really, you know, at this point in time, not a major advancement, but it may be the beginnings of a major advancement. Uh, And then what you'll do is, you know, you'd end up mapping your suspension like you do the motor.
4: Right, right. And,
2: uh, you know, so, but like I say, that would take extremely sophisticated, very, very high sampling rates, and, again, figuring out the way to do that safely so that when there's a failure, you know, it doesn't spit you off that motorcycle, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is really the trick. And uh, But other than that, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of, uh, you know, piston and valving designs and decreasing friction. And, you know, certainly as we work, we work with uh, either increasing or decreasing chassis rigidity and, um, uh, you know, chassis geometry, you know, are, are, are things that have evolved, mm-hmm. uh, you know, over time. And some of them are kind of kept in the mystic mumbo-jumbo range where, where, you know, nobody wants you to know what they're really doing, and they just make some changes, and you go, well, why'd you do that? And they go,
3: yeah.
2: uh, I'd have to kill you, you know. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, but the truth is that there are advancements that are occurring over time here, um, you know, in everything from tire technology to, you know, chassis rigidity or, or you know, again, in lack of rigidity in certain places. Right. Uh, we're actually working with uh, in the road race arena right now with uh, Michael Sizz, uh, who's got lateral suspension uh, front forks. We're actually manufacturing front forks, and he's got triple clamps. They actually move side to side, and he's had phenomenal mm-hmm. results in the road racing world. Well, yeah. you know, it remains to be seen whether that'll translate yeah. over into motocross, but, uh, you know, like I said, there are things that are kind of coming down mm-hmm. the pipe that are that are pretty interesting and, and fun.
1: I feel like, uh, um, you know, and, and I, I just follow the pro circuit, and I go to all the supercrosses and nationals, but I feel like with the aluminum frames, and of course KTM is still steel, but We've reached our limit in aluminum frames where the riders just went bigger and bigger, bigger shock shot, you know, 16, 17, 18 millimeter shock shafts, uh, 46, 48, 50 millimeter forks. And for a while now, and even some teams are going backwards, uh, back to 48s, back to 16 mil shock shafts and things like that. We, we've reached a limit of size where now it's getting translated into the riders' hands and arms a lot and we're now looking for different ways i mean we meaning teams and riders do you, do you agree with that do you, do you know what i'm saying and what are your thoughts on it
2: yeah well absolutely and the thing about it is there there are a number of things okay so so you know kind of back to the discussion that we had with right setups versus upside down mm-hmm. believe it or not added rigidity isn't always better and in fact what's one of the lessons that i learned i don't know if you remember back in don't know how old you are there but uh uh, we used to have something called cross braces with right-set-up forks. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that, yeah. Yeah, two pieces of aluminum welded together that mm-hmm. basically made an X and tied the triple clamps together.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and it actually, and I remember testing those out on my, I think it was 78 RM250, right? hmm And I remember going, I don't like this. Yeah. And we were only talking 43-millimeter right-set-up forks back then. Yeah. You know, and I was going, no, this is too rigid, you know, and it's like, really? <laughs> yeah, that's too rigid? Yeah. You know, but the, the point is, and, you know, you, know, you kind of, after my conversation about rigidity and right-set-up versus upside-down and that kind of thing, um, you go, well, why don't manufacturers put up right-set-up force if they're so much better?
4: Yeah.
2: You know, people come to me and they go, why don't you manufacture right-set-up force? And, you know, <laughs> right, it's right. like, right. they work way better and, you know, you'll just steal the market, you know, and I go, here's the truth, nobody would buy them. Yeah, you know why did Suzuki put right set up forty nine millimeter forks on their bikes for what two years? Two years,
1: yeah ninety six ninety ninety six ninety seven ninety five ninety six or something, yeah.
2: Yeah, something in there. Why did they put it on for two years? Because they didn't sell enough motorcycles. That's why they took it off and put upside down forks back on
1: it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. market. It wasn't
2: huh? because they didn't work better. Right. It's just because people went. No, it's not upside down. It must not be as good. <laughs> right,
4: right, you know, right.
2: So it's like if you really, you know, if I, if I really had a, you know open minded race team, which, you know, again, you've got to deal with, you know, riders' preconceived ideas.
3: Uh-huh.
2: But if I actually had riders who were open minded, I would go grab some of those 49 millimeter Suzuki <laughs> forks, <laughs> yeah. go put them on the bike and, and go start playing with them. Yeah. But, you know, um, and like I say, part of it is because there's a binding issue with the bushing. As it goes through, you know, uh, kind of a bent fork tube, as uh-huh. these forks flex back and forth. Um,
3: right.
2: But uh, anyway, um, so you know, as far as shock shaft diameters, shock shaft diameter really its biggest effect is how much oil it pushes through to the reservoir. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is how much effect that that compression adjuster actually has. So the compression adjuster on a shock, which now has high and low speed, right. um, Um, you know, adjusters to it. Some of those adjusters are effective. Some of them are not very effective at all. Uh, But basically what happens is if you go from 16 to an 18-millimeter shaft, you have massively increased the volume of the oil that gets pushed into the reservoir. And so therefore, if you had the exact same valving on that compression adjuster on the shock, all of a sudden that adjuster would make a much bigger difference, Mm -hmm. you know, and have a lot greater effect on the damping. Now... Uh, all that being said, um, uh, uh, you know, again, people will get kind of, you know, go and put 18-millimeter shock. The bike doesn't do what you, they want it to do, right. and they point to the shock shaft and go, it must be the shock shaft is the mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. Well, if you rework the, you know, the compression adjuster, yeah. maybe the passageways are too restrictive or the valve that, you know, is part of that compression adjuster is too restrictive or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's not an inherent problem with the size of the shock shaft. Now, the bigger the shock shaft, the greater the seal area, you get a little bit more drag. But really, that's insignificant between mm-hmm. a 16 and an 18. Yeah. Uh, you know, but as far as the front forks are concerned, basically, as you go larger and larger in diameter, in order to keep the same weight of a front fork, what you do is you make the wall, the thickness, thinner and thinner and thinner. Right. That actually, you can maintain the same strength, or actually increase the strength by going to a larger diameter, making the wall thinner. But what happens is you get to a certain thinness of a wall, and you actually get a situation where front forks can actually collapse or cave in, or you know that kind of stuff. And right. and so, as a matter of fact, what if you look at—I mean, you've been around long enough. Back in the olden days, uh, when we'd bend a set of fork tubes, we'd go put them in the press and we straighten them out. You go try and straighten out a set of upside uh, <laughs> yeah. down forty-eight millimeter or whatever fork tubes. Yeah. All they—they've got a crease in them.
3: Yeah, you
2: know, you you just throw them away. There's no there's no fixing those fork tubes unless that bend, you know, bend is a pretty no. Nah, you pretty much throw them away. Right, right. And and so um, basically, there's a limit as to how thin you can make the walls of the both the inner and the outer fork tube. Mm-hmm. And so and again, thinking that if more rigidity is better. You know, we'd run 52 or 54 or 56 or yeah. whatever millimeter time. There's, no, there's, there's definitely no, just, yeah,
1: there's no call for that. You know, Nobody, nobody's yeah. trying them. Nobody seems to want to go
4: there.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I think uh, either Marzocchi or WP went up to 52s for a while. I don't know if you remember those. They actually made aluminum fork tubes, and I, they were 52s.
1: Well, I was always thinking and, that that was for steel frame bikes, though, which flex more. You
4: know?
2: Well, yeah, well, and again, the thing is is the flex more, flex less you can design a aluminum frame to flex just as much as a steel frame. True, true. You know, you know I mean, it just, it's just a different material. You just have to design it differently. You know, it's not mm-hmm. going to look the same. Yeah. But you can, you can design them to be as rigid as you want. And again, I mean, we get into road racing. So again, back to the road racing analogy, one of the things that we found is certainly over the years, if you look at the last 30 or 40 years of, motorcycle development, I would say one of the biggest improvements overall has been the increase in rigidity of the chassis. Mm-hmm. Well, also notice what's happened to tires. Say, for example, in road racing, again, that yeah. one, is, you've seen tires go from whatever, three inches wide, and now they're seven inches yeah. wide or, you know, whatever.
4: whatever.
3: And obviously,
2: you know, so in road racing, it's really easy to see, but we've actually had that same kind of, you know, improvements with motocross, but not to that kind of dramatic effect. So in, in road racing, I mean, you used to have, you know, 1200 Kawasaki that had a, you know, two inch diameter, uh, you know, swing arm (laughs) and you could take the rear wheel and, you know, kind of bend the thing side to side with your hand, you know, and, and, uh, you know, same thing with chassis on dirt bikes, they've made them way, way, way more rigid, rigid than Mm -hmm. they are, than, than, they were back then, you know? So I mean that, that improvement has been dramatic, but what's happened is they got to a point where it was so rigid that they were coming into chatter issues uh, that they didn't have before, and they're going. Wait a second, what's going on? And so again, into this mix of things comes the introduction of aluminum and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Basically, aluminum is a an interesting material that until kind of some of the recent alloys and heat treatments and that kind of stuff. I mean, if you remember the first aluminum frame car, it was a it was a Porsche, and they raced the thing, and they changed the chassis after every race. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: They threw the chassis away because the Just... chassis would basically build up the fatigue in there and eventually it would break.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, and so, but anyway, as we've gone into the kind of the 90s and the 21st century here, mm-hmm. they have gone into aluminum frames and that kind of stuff, and, yeah, uh, yeah, like I said, you can design that frame to have whatever amount of flex that you want into it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a similar kind of thing where, you know, I mean, basically what they're doing is they're, you know, kind of looking in every direction that they can to improve the motorcycle, they're obviously riding everybody else's motorcycle that's out there, yeah. uh, you know, as well. All the other brands are going, you know, hey, which one's doing the best job? And, uh, you know, I mean, I think that has a lot of effect on the, the direction that, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that it, that it goes. You know, it's kind of like, hey, let's, you know, let's not be stupid. I mean, it would be stupid to not <laughs> ride other people's motorcycles, other brand motorcycles. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like you ride them and, and you know, kind of still go, hey, this one's doing this better. This one's doing this worse. But... But yeah, there's definitely a, a point, and, I, and I, so overall, do I, I absolutely agree with what your your original premise was. They've gotten to a point where, where you know, larger is not necessarily better. It kind of cracks me up too because I show it did such a phenomenal job on marketing their works kit stuff, yeah. where they went from a forty-seven millimeter to a forty-nine millimeter, and uh, you know, and you couldn't get the forty-nine millimeter unless you knew somebody or you were on a factory team or had a
3: fistful
2: yeah. of dollars, you know, and. And, uh, you know, he's brilliant. And, you know, you kind of go, okay, KYB's 48. Yeah. Uh, production's 47. Um, you know, and yeah. uh, show us, you know, Kit is 49, really, a millimeter. Uh, and, you and, know, and, well, and, and, it's, and I'm uh... not saying there isn't a difference, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like now they've gone to production 48. So it's like, what, 48's the magic number? Yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, I don't know.
2: You know, it's so like, I tell you what, right. right, why don't you grab some of those right set up 49 millimeters? With, yeah, we're back on the ninety five, ninety six, and just give them a
1: test. Um, those forty, but Paul, those forty nines are nitrate coated. They're nitrate coated. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. There you go. Um, you got
2: that coating, baby.
1: Oh, right, uh, oh! Can you just all the people out there, all the dads, that have dropped all that money on forty nine? Show us, just
2: they're uh, yeah. all, they're all no. out there. Well, you know, I mean, seriously, part of it, what you deal with. You deal with the writer. Frankly, if the writer thinks it's going to be better, I guess to a very great extent, it's better.
4: Right, right, good point. And so
2: it's like you know, I mean, it, you know, heck, uh, I mean, uh, Scott for years, Scott Bennett for years, tried to talk uh, Ricky Carmichael into a little bit higher, a little bit quicker, or yeah, at least yeah, a little right, bit quicker, right? You know, and uh, you know, but if you got the kids, you know, and they're c- coming there and they see their their factory starts winning with 49 millimeter and it's got the coating or whatever. It's mm-hmm. like, man, they've got to have it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, hopefully they go faster with it. Hey, <laughs> so, do you... but they have nothing to do with how it works. So. Do you,
1: uh, do you have a bit more time? I know I said, I keep you for an hour, but I got a few more questions sure. if you don't mind. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, PDS system, KTM PDS system. Um, they, they, it's on the off-road bike still. They've ditched it for, um, motocross, uh, and supercross. Yeah. I worked at right. factory KTM for a couple of years and if the amount of suspension guys that came in and out of the door from Holland, from America, from Austria and tried to valve the stuff and make the riders happy was incredible. Um, and, and, and when you talk to guys at, at WP, they're like, uh, well, telling you it's exactly the same. And, and other guys are just like, you need a linkage, you need the progression. Where do you stand on that system? What are your thoughts on it? And was it a good move to, uh, to ditch it?
2: Well, actually that's an interesting deal. Um, uh, and first of all, do I think that it was a good move on KTM's part? I think it was brilliant on their part.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Now, the reason why I would say that is, look what happened to their sales. So back in this is like late, you know, 20th century, where you know, 1998 and whatever. Basically, what happened is they got rid of the linkage, and it appealed to a whole bunch of guys that didn't want to change their air filter. Right. I think they went, I don't want to grease that linkage up like they did anyway. <laughs> right. I mean, they didn't do it anyway, yeah, so yeah. Like, right. well, why worry about it? But, you know, it's like it, the simplicity of the rear end without a linkage was, seriously, it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And what happened is that it, it attracted a whole bunch of riders that they basically felt, well, it's going to be lighter, it's going to be easier to maintain, you know, simpler, it's blah, blah, blah. Okay, so, so if you look at KTM sales, they were a very, very minor player back in the 90s. Right. And they have become a huge huge, major player uh, at this point in time. And so it's like, what happened? Well, they took the linkages off. Now, okay, if I tested a linkage bike versus a no linkage bike back-to-back, made them work as good as they could be, well, could we do stuff with that no linkage bike with the PDS? Yes, we could. There were some major, major design, as far as I'm concerned, flaws of the earliest models. They actually started with some some early uh, uh It was actually the first shock that was on there, and they actually had uh, valving. most valving, current valving is 12 millimeter ID. In other words, that's the yep. size of the shaft that goes over. And, you know, the KTMs there, you know, it became 16 millimeter, or whatever. Well, the first Olins was actually a 14 millimeter ID, and the, basically there are two pistons on this, on the shaft, and right. there's a primary and a secondary. And what would have to happen is, is that oil would have to go down the center of the shaft and bypass the secondary piston, Go through the primary piston, and then basically what would happen is as that fork bottomed out, there was a needle that plugged that the end of the shaft, mm-hmm. and so then it would force the oil to go through the secondary piston and add the damping that secondary piston crates onto the damping of the primary piston. Now, that was a whole bunch of words there, and probably a lot of people that are listening right now going, huh, what did he say?
4: If I, but uh, the point well, is,
2: yeah. <laughs> the point is that when that needle didn't, wasn't plugging up that hole down the center of the shaft, all the oil that fed that primary piston had to go through that single hole down the center of the shaft. Mm -hmm. I took one look at that thing, and I go, this will never work. The reason why it will never work is because there's not enough flow. You know, the hole size down the middle of it, this one tiny little hole, I think it was 8 or 9 millimeter in diameter, Mm -hmm. one hole 8 or 9 millimeter in diameter, and it was feeding the entire port area of the primary piston. I'm going... When you get into a high-speed hit and that, that shot's got to move fast, yeah. what's going to happen is that orifice that is supposed to just pass oil to the, to the primary piston is going to become a player. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, that piston will actually create damping on its own, or excuse me, that orifice, that hole will create damping on its own. Right. And I actually went out and tested it out to where, where I actually took the secondary piston off. Uh, I did a whole bunch of things and, and absolutely, without a doubt, located that the problem was that that thing velocity squared. And so velocity squared means orifice valve amping. Every time you double the velocity, you have four times the force. Right. And so what will happen is that you get a big spike in there. And so anything square edge is a problem. Now, could you valve that thing so soft that it was okay for an enduro setup? Yeah. But the problem with an enduro setup is you go through all this little choppy stuff here and there and whatnot. All of a sudden, they drop you off a 10-foot cliff. Yeah. And your suspension's got to handle it. Well, if you didn't crash, eh, you know, it's like the trade-off. You'd probably need, you know, buy up the thing towards a softer setup, and you just live with the thing crashing through the suspension travel. Okay, now, all that being said, I looked at the first one, and I went, I'm not even going to bother with this thing. Then the next year they came out with the WP. The WP had 16-millimeter IV valving, and they made the whole size up to 10-millimeter. And I went, Yeah, they're heading in the right direction, but yeah. it's still not enough. And I still didn't build a gold valve kit for another... I think two years because I said I'm not going to do this because still the ID of the valving is way too small. Yep. And and, and I go and I don't want to spend literally in order to get an entire set of of uh, shims on my shelf. I'm stamping out the shims. It's costing me a hundred grand just to put the shims on the shelf.
4: Yeah, yeah.
2: And I, I don't want to you know stamp out stuff. You know, um, thank God I didn't stamp out 14 millimeter ID stuff because it'd all be sitting there. It would only work on one motorcycle.
1: On one year, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, one year motorcycle. stuff. <laughs> so. but anyway. um, Basically, as I went through this thing, it, it got better, and they, and they actually made the hole size better, or bigger, and it got better. And what happened is I'm, I'm doing one of my seminars down in Australia, and so Terry Hayes down there, um, and uh, he's my distributor down there. Really, really neat guy, really sharp, uh, and he basically uh, says, you know, gee, this telescopic needle, and I was talking about the needle, the needle actually didn't come into play until about the same time as the, as the shock at the bottom-out bumper. Yep. So really, the needle became a glorified bottom-out device. Mm-hmm. You know? And then it just messed with you when it would velocity square when you hit square and stuff. So it's kind of like you go, gosh darn it, how do I make this thing work? And anyway, what he came up with is a long needle. But if you would made a long needle without it being telescopic, uh, it would have just crashed into the, you know, into the rebound mechanism and just wadded itself. And so yeah. he'd actually uh, invented a telescopic needle, and we started making telescopic needles for him, and that was wow, just a that's, huge that's improvement. Neat.
1: Yeah. We, yeah, we tried, we. if I told you all the different tapers that we tried in that needle... Uh, <laughs> I, I believe it. Um, <laughs> we we used to be like, hey, you know, we'd have, okay, here's one taper, here's, an, here's 14, here's seven tapers... Uh, with different, and we're just like, all right, and every one never right. worked, you know? And right. Eventually, I think it got to a point where they blocked one of the pistons off or something. I don't remember what Well, what, what yeah. They tried actually, one
2: time. I mean, basically, what you would do, and so here's Terry. Terry makes a long, tapered needle, right? Yeah. And And so it's one of the things is it's the progression then is more gradual, which is a good idea, but you look at it and you go, well, wait a second. If it's velocity squaring on the idea of that shaft, Without a needle in it, and now you have a needle in it basically through the entire stroke, Mm -hmm. haven't you just compounded your problem? Well, the answer to that one is yes. However, what we ended up doing is we basically surrendered to the fact that the thing is going to velocity squared. So (laughs) it's going to velocity squared. So what that means is we need to valve the secondary piston way, 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 way lighter so that when it actually gets into those high speed spikes and squared stuff, that that secondary valving opens up. Mm -hmm. And so basically with the telescopic needle, it made it more gradual, it made it more, you know, more consistent, more, um, you know, more gradual as far as the progression is concerned, but it required that we revalve the secondary piston drastically softer. Now, what we also would do is, what they started doing too, is they started making the secondary piston and use smaller ports in the secondary piston. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now with smaller ports of the secondary piston, it would want a velocity square. Yeah. You know, so that you go, Oh god. So what we ended up doing is we made a gold valve kit that replaced the primary piston with the primary piston that had the big ports. We put it in place of the secondary piston, put mm-hmm. the telescopic needle in it, and then the other thing that we did is I think you remember in there too, I think it was oh, I don't know, maybe two thousand Four, five, or something like that. They went and they got rid of the the, the progressively wound springs. They went to straight. Yeah, rates straight
1: rate. That was the hot ticket apparently for many years. Yeah, straight rates.
2: Well, yeah. And so what happened was, I mean, progressively wound spring incredibly expensive to manufacture. Mm-hmm. I think that the reason why they went to straight rate springs had a lot more to do with that than it is that they worked better. Because the frankly, yeah. they didn't. And, and in fact, what I had done early on is. I actually, I've been doing leverage ratio curves. Uh, you know, the amount of things that we do, uh, one of my, my kind of taglines here is the science of suspension. Right. And we have everything from chassis measurement to shock dyno. I've got, got a shock dyno since 1988. Right. So uh, I've got chassis measurement equipment. Uh, I, you know, I've got, um, I mean, just all kinds of stuff. We've been doing leverage ratio curves since, since 1981. And I have a, you know, if you ever get a chance to want to come by, I'll, you know, show you some of the leverage ratio curves we do. It's kind of an interesting, um, you know, mm-hmm. kind of. There's history all in there, uh, you know, that as things have changed, it's kind of been been neat and, and fun.
3: Right. And, but
2: the, the, you know, KTM without that progression, you know, that that was something like a 10% rise in rate with the way that I measure them, where where uh, like say a, a, a CR. Or a RM or whatever might have twenty-eight to thirty percent rise in rate, and the only reason I give you those numbers, you'd have to know how I actually measured it to get the numbers. But yeah. the reason I give you the numbers is to give you a comparison. And right. so, you know, it's like if if, if everybody else is around twenty-eight to thirty percent, and which by the way, that's what are now, um, you know, again the way that I measure them, and you compare that to the KTM, which is ten eleven percent. Yeah then you go, okay, what do I need to do to make that KTM more progressive? Well, right. you're going to do your best to make it more progressive damping-wise, but it's also got to be gradual, and it's also got to be, um, you know, not creating any spikes. And you're also going to make that spring rate more progressive. And, and um, like I said, I think that probably one of the things that happened, too, uh, tuners, when they first got those... those uh, Um, you know, got those bikes, and they were starting to, you know, mess around with springs. You get a heavier rider, lighter rider, whatever. They couldn't get the springs. So WP wasn't producing enough of the springs. Uh And uh, White Brothers was actually the importer at the time, and they very rarely had them, uh, you know, if you could ever get them. Mm -hmm. And and basically, so what a lot of the tuners did is they went to straight-rate spring, and, you know, kind of once the tuner says, hey, straight-rate spring is the way to go. Yeah it's almost like they're locked into a straight-rate spring is the way to go. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we actually created what we call P-series springs. And what spring is, what I did is I figured out what the, the rear-wheel force curve was of the Japanese motorcycles. So, you know, Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki, Kawasaki, whatever. Yeah. I looked at all those and decided what was the best rear-wheel force curve. I worked that backwards to figure out what the spring progression needed to be on the KTM, and that's what the basis of our P-series springs are. So we actually produce... Progressively wound springs for those bikes, and uh, it's a huge, huge difference. You know, so yeah, yeah. you know, with that that bike, you know, telescopic needle, gold valve, and uh, yeah. you know, E series spring. springs with our springs, huge, huge differences. And if I still, have, rather have linkage, yeah, yeah. still rather have a linkage. Yeah,
1: yeah, rather have a linkage. at the bottom of this conversation, I guess I'm saying you're not a fan. You figured you're not a fan, well, and, you, and you enjoy the no, linkage. I,
2: here's <laughs> the thing. I'm a huge fan because we've made a lot of money right, on right, it. Right, 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 uh, Yeah, but, so, you know, On the other hand, like I was glad when they went to a, you know, I and mean, again, I've been saying the same kind of things in the seminars for years, and I, I've had people that just absolutely hated me in the seminars and go, you are a KTM hater. You know, I remember just like, no, 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 I love KTM. You know, it's like, yeah. and I think they build neat motorcycles, and I think, Frankly, I think it was the smartest move they could have made. If you look at historically, yeah. um, you know what they've done with sales—they have phenomenal sales today. And there are many countries where KTM is yeah. number one or number two in dirt bike sales in the entire country. Um,
1: also, you know, and- yeah. also too moving, having no link, moving the shock to the right hand gave the air the, the straight shot from air into the into the motor and made their 125 screamers. You know,
2: and and there was yeah, and there are advantages to it. You know, what yeah. I mean, so there are advantages to it. You know, don't get me wrong. And yeah. you know, overall, did KTM make it work? Yeah, and, and frankly, I think it took more courage for them to go back to a linkage mm-hmm. than it did for them to get rid of the linkage in the first place. Right, right. I mean, right. frankly, they, they didn't have much to lose back in nineteen ninety eight. You know, yeah. they didn't have much market share. <laughs> yeah,
4: good point. Um, you know,
2: best,
1: uh, best test rider you've ever worked with.
2: Uh, you know, that's really hard to say. I, I, I'm my favorite still Dubak.
1: Uh, yeah. Dr. D. <laughs> you
2: know, Doug, Doug is just, I mean, he was, he, he got so good. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, when I test with writers, I'm always testing with a writer to see if a writer knows what he's talking about. You mm-hmm. know, in other words, if he goes, yeah, it's better, it's better, it's better. And I'm turning it in the opposite direction. You know, halfway through, then eh, he really doesn't know. Doug got really good at being able to mm-hmm. feel what the bike was doing and and uh, be able to give me really quality feedback, which is really what you need with the right. with the test ride. Now, frankly, that's that's one of the reasons why I got so heavily into data acquisition is is because you couldn't always trust the test rider. Right. It was very difficult to get you know good feedback. I mean, heck, you know that. You know, you work with riders.
1: Yeah, so. well, I mean, the biggest thing that I would find is the track changes from the morning to the afternoon, and you've almost lost your window of what we were trying to do in the first place, especially supercross testing, you know, where the supercross tracks are. Uh, something that worked at 10 o'clock in the morning on a nicely watered track uh, at 4 o'clock no longer worked, you know?
2: Absolutely. That can be so. Absolutely. Um, and here's the other thing, too, is if the riders had good practice sessions, mm-hmm. Meaning they feel loose and they've gotten yeah. up to speed. The suspension yeah. works better than if they haven't.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So, uh, so there
2: may be stuff at four o'clock that's different than the ten o'clock session, just because the rider isn't going fast enough.
1: Um, uh, you may have answered this question, but uh, is there one model of bike? And, and you may have answered it by saying KTM. Is there a model of bike that was so horrible set up, and you made so much money on from everybody sending it in? Is there some? Is there one model over the years, or one or two models where? The, the OEM just missed the mark, maybe an early 90s CR or something like that, I'm thinking.
2: You know, I tell you all of the above. I mean, there are a couple that come to mind. I remember when Suzuki had a problem with the patents on the full floater mm-hmm. back in the 80s. In yep. the 86, they came out with that eccentric cam. Now, again, a lot of the people that are listening to this are going, I wasn't born then, yeah. you know, but, but they came out with this eccentric cam and it had so much friction in it that you could literally place the suspension anywhere you wanted it. I mean, literally <laughs> yeah. it had... 35-millimeter range of where you would pull up or push down, and it would just stop. That was a horrible, horrible motorcycle. And, <laughs> and I tell you, they, they made a really low seat and really high bars, and it just was a funky. Anyway, uh, that was an interesting bike, and we did everything from machine,
4: yeah. you
2: know, whatever. But um, KPM certainly as a whole, the whole TDS thing has just been really good for us. Yeah, But I tell you, just overall, uh, you know, Honda, um, You know, I used to have people call me up and and tell me that their new Honda, you know, whatever, 93 Honda CR250 was just awesome, you know, and that I was going to be in business. I I remember one year we did. I think it was uh, 86. Again, this is pretty far back. Yeah. But I think that they imported 2,100 CR250s, Mm -hmm. and we actually revalved 500 of them.
1: Jesus, really?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we we did almost twenty five percent of the yeah. entire, you know, the entire right. you know uh, you know market that came into the import that came into the United States, and Honda's, uh, you know, and they're such good bikes and people love them so much, and just have a, had a tendency over the over history to be harsh and you know kick guys around a bit and mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's like and you know, I would tell the guy well don't you know, just go and ride that you know go race it. I know that the thing feels really good right now, but just go race it and then call me afterwards. Yeah, you know, and yeah, then call yeah. me <laughs> and go. Well, it isn't quite as good. Let's make some changes. You know, but the thing about it is that you look at it. The neat thing about suspension is that, I mean, for us as a tuner, as, as a business, as a, the rider is so percent of the overall bike and rider weight mm-hmm. that you change the rider weight, you need a new setup. Right. You change a different style of riding need a new setup. You need a different, you know, you go from enduro to, you know, arena cross, supercross, motocross, whatever. It's a different setup. And so basically, no matter what people are giving you, what the suspension, you know, the manufacturer is giving you, uh, you know, if, you know, as the OEM uh, piece off the showroom, I don't really care because if you're into riding, you're going to want to get it set up custom anyway.
4: Right.
2: And so, you know, what that does is for us, it gives us a constant market. Uh, and it gives us, uh, you know, obviously constant challenges to be able to go and and set things up for individuals, and knowing that individuals are different. Too. There aren't any two guys that are exactly the same. You know, I mean, a lot of guys will like a certain setup, but you know, hey, we are we got to be ready for a, another guy that you know he's that hundredth or hundred and first guy that looks mm-hmm. you know, either way too soft, way too stiff, and then we work with him, you know. And so, and then once we get to know the rider's style, then we know what to do with them next year, and you know, we. we serial number, and we record right. everything, so we know when we're working with a guy. You know, we, we can actually see it.
1: Or, I was thinking so, nine, 97 CR250, the aluminum frame, the horrible thing that first came out. <laughs> 97
2: CR250 is yeah. great. You know, yeah. but it, like I said, it's kind of boring. I mean, yeah, there have been some particular models. Yeah. You know, I mean, heck, you know, some of them kind of get back into the vintage era. But, but like I say, I mean, all the manufacturers have been kind to us in that in that there's no possible way that one setup can, can work for a 120 pound rider and a 250 pound rider. Right, right. Yeah. You know, it, so it's it, so it's really more of a a, a process of educating the customers of, and educating the riders. Mm-hmm. There's value to doing. And the thing that you know, kind of, we have to deal with is that I mean, there are some people that have, you know, in my estimation, as suspension tuners, have have not really made that much improvement on the suspension and the problem is that sometimes people as customers or as riders they'll go oh well it's revalved and they think that because it's revalved anybody can do the same job uh, and they don't necessarily and so sometimes you can get a really poor setup and and it can be dramatically different than a you know another setup and and the rider would never know because once again the best you've ridden is best you know yeah yeah
1: it comes down to
2: that yeah once once the rider gets that hey you know we can set it up for him and wow it's better in all areas mm-hmm. um and you know it's really it's not a fault of the manufacturers because again they can they can't set them all up that way and it, maybe that's part of the attempt of an air fork mm-hmm. you know an air spring as well and change spring rate for you know whoever yeah. so just by changing uh, you know right. but uh yeah like i said you know it's it's more kind of the whole the whole deal with uh, motorcycles and that's the way it is you know it's just oh. uh, Last
1: last question for you. Um, Lots of debate on this online. Lots of talk. I've read about it. Um, I'm not that smart, so I don't know what the correct answer is, but what's happening in a seat bounce? What's going on with you (laughs) when you seat bounce a jump as far as uh, Uh, physics and... and Yes. You are
2: a sneaky one, aren't you? I think we had this conversation when we were sitting on the airplane yes we, years ago or Yes, we
1: did, we did. Um, yes. Because, like, I, I read the theories online, and I read some smart people that seem smart anyways, and I I don't really know what's going on. But in your uh, well-educated opinion, is it, uh, is it the speed and the, the, the height of the jump, the spring? What's going on?
2: Well, in a nutshell, I mean, first of all, just actually, you talk about things that are written online. One of the things that I would caution people, and again, they don't have to believe me, but yeah. one of the things that you see online is you'll see a whole bunch of differences of opinion, mm-hmm. and yeah. some of those opinions are better than others, and some of them are more qualified than others. And the problem with the internet is that you can get on there as Joe Speed Guy Engineer uh, Twelve or something, yeah. <laughs> and and bring you know present yourself as some kind of engineer and. You know, you didn't finish high school, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with not finishing high school, but you know, to present yourself as an engineer, yeah. you're not. You know, and so, and the thing is with with engineering, it's kind of an interesting thing. I think I was, I don't know, not maybe not a freshman, but maybe uh, a sophomore or something in engineering. I remember doing one one problem, and engineering problems are huge math problems, and you basically use physics to come up with solutions to word problems, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I, I had this thing, and I knew that I had it figured out. You know, it was a pretty complicated problem. I get into class, and the teacher starts to explain the answer to the problem, and it was 180 degrees out from what I had guessed, yeah. my original premise. I mean, literally, I was completely asked backward, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I graduated with a straight A, yeah. you know, yeah, in yeah. mechanical engineering. So, I, I mean, but, but, and by the way, too, I think that was really because... I started my ass off. It wasn't because I was brilliant. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you teased me a little bit about being the smart guy, but, I mean, I really, I've studied really, really hard to get right. this stuff. And But anyway, so I'm, I'm 180 degrees out on this thing, and all of a sudden, I'm sitting there going, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, the same kind of things happens with suspension. Okay, how do you make it plush and firm at the same time? Mm-hmm. Eh, that's a good question, and people have different theories on how that actually works. Uh, I have my own theory, and, and I've been... You know, teaching people my theory since '94 yeah. and in the seminars and building it into the products and et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, the bottom line is, is how does it actually work? You know, right. I mean, what actually works. But anyway, back to your question. And so, what I'll say is, the proof is in the results. And remember, too, keep in mind, too, that a rider can have great results like Ricky, yeah. and maybe not have the best suspension setup on the planet. Right. You know. And again, again, my opinion. And uh, but that's. Uh, Anyway, but as far as the seat bounce is concerned, it's kind of one of those those things where the major thing that you're doing is with a motorcycle and a rider, completely unlike a car. You can stand up on a motorcycle. When you stand up on a motorcycle, you've now got another set of suspension which is involved in this whole system, and it's your legs. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is if you sit down you've now connected your body mass into the sprung mass of the chassis. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, when you stand up, you have disconnected it. Now, it's not completely separate, but you've got another set of suspension in there. Yeah. Okay, now, if you sit down going into the face of a jump, what happens is, is that you've added your body mass to the sprung mass, and again, this is not, don't, don't quote me word for word on this, because again, it's not like when you're standing up, you're completely yeah. disconnected. Yeah, there, is, you know, there but, is
1: something there when you're standing up, right.
2: Right, but you're basically separated by the suspension of, to the greatest extent, your legs. So when you sit down, what happens is, that suspension will now get compressed further when it actually hits the face of the jump. Mm-hmm. Okay, when it hits the face of the jump, if it has gone through further... What it does is a spring stores energy. If you have now compressed that suspension and it has now stored more energy, it is going to recoil more. Right. Okay, now, not only that, there are some things in the physics that basically with where you put your body, et cetera, et cetera, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, will have to do with how it recoils into you and et cetera, et cetera. But to the greatest extent, what happens is you store energy into that spring, and you basically keep your body attached to the, the chassis by grabbing the bike with your knees, yep. and you will, you will spring up higher as a result of uh, you know, using body, that yeah. energy that you stored into the spring and chassis. And actually, I did a whole bunch of testing on this uh, a number of years back, and we actually found that the rider that we were working with couldn't seat bounce because the suspension was too soft. Okay. and he was actually slamming through the travel and it was actually putting energy into the frame. Mm-hmm. And so that frame certainly is going to recoil off of that frame, too, but it was more uncontrolled.
1: Yeah, not as much. And so yeah. what,
2: we right. had, yeah, what we ended up doing is increasing the stiffness of the high-speed compression damping, making it to where it, it used all the travel, but just tagged it, and then that allowed maximum recoil um, to, uh, you know, to occur as, as you would jump. And it's basically a, a, a seat bounce is the opposite of a scrub. You know, so you got the bubble scrub, and the right. bubble scrub basically is that you are actually taking that disconnected um, body, and you are allowing that your, your upper body to come downward mm-hmm. as the chassis is just leaving, you know, the rear wheel is just leaving the jump. Right. And what that does, it allows you to fly lower than you would if you had not done that. And so... You know, you're actually, you know, the opposite of that is when you're doing a seat bounce, where you're actually connected to the chassis, and then that is recoiling off where the opposite of that, that is a scrub where you're actually taking your, your you know. You're,
1: you're forcing your, it, yeah.
2: Your, 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 yeah, you're basically taking the center of gravity, your body, your body center of gravity, and making it go downward while the chassis is going upward.
1: Right, right. Interesting. So- interesting anyway
2: stuff. Yeah. that's in a deal you know, there are a number of things that actually go on in there but nothing yeah. in that right
1: um, <laughs> interesting stuff uh thank you for uh for doing the bto racerx podcast uh paul Feed racetech.com don't forget to check out the suspension seminars that happen they're uh, they're every fall is that
2: uh actually we do them twice a year okay. uh spring and fall it's on the website yep. but uh and then i i do them probably every other year in australia as well and sometimes in new zealand and you know, you never know where else. So. You got, you but a, uh, yeah, we we list them on the website.
1: You got a book, the Motorcycle Suspension Bible. that People can look into. Uh, you can I learn about it. suspension. You got motor seminars going on too, uh, which are new, I believe. Um, man, like I yep. said, I don't know what you're doing, man, because you're just costing yourself money.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I. I uh, yes. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for the. Thanks for the business <laughs> advice. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, th- sometimes I kick myself, but I'm, like I say, my. My whole deal is how can I help other people yeah. uh, go fast and, and be successful? So, and, and it's awesome anyways, you've
1: had your two yeah. most successful years recently, so things are going great for you, and I feel like we're all smarter after listening to this uh, podcast. So thanks again, well,
2: Paul. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate it very much. All right. Thanks for doing what you do. All right. See ya. Okay. Take care. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Steve Mathis Show. Search Pulp MX in the iTunes store to find the more than 200 episode archive or get the Pulp MX app for your iPhone for the complete Pulp MX fix.